Happy New Year! Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update for episode 116. Let's just call this one Pine is Fine. I've been thinking about doing this for a while and actually it was either last episode or two episodes ago I had a question about pine and I made a passing comment about how I should probably do a whole episode dedicated to pine. So pulled out the notes that I'd started on this, asked the community for a bunch of questions and this show just kind of wrote itself. So we're going to dig deep into the pines, not the spruces, not the firs, not the larches, the pines, nothing but the pines. But first, I want to say a huge thank you to the the patrons of this show, mainly because I put out this question on Instagram and I got two or three responses. I put it out on Patreon and got some really, really good questions from uh, all of you fine people who help support the show. So that's just my really blatant segue to 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 say sponsor the show only smart people sponsor this show <laughs> patreon.com slash lumber update is where you got to go to sponsor the show it's how you get into this fancy commemorative useful wood species sticker game too or i'm pushing those out every single month but enough of that um speaking of the stickers i wanted to uh, I guess the best word for this is a min, not a min, but add to the Winge episode. There was a point that I wanted to make as I was talking about last month's uh, featured species Winge that I, for some reason it just fell out of my head. But there are a lot of conflicting experiences with Winge, like working experiences based on where it comes from. There's a lot of people who will tell you, I absolutely hate Winge. It splinters horribly. The stuff is just a pain it about to work with. And there's other people who will say, yeah, it splinters, but I don't mind how it works. And it, it's quite lovely to work with. And I get really great results from a finishing, from a cutting, from a joiner perspective. Um, not night and day differences, but certainly much more agreeable than the people who call it a devil weed. And a lot of that comes down to the geographic distribution and specifically the commercial trade as it relates to that geographic distribution. You'll find that the Congolese wingi is much easier to work, but the bulk of the material comes, the bulk of the, the commercial material we get in Wingate comes from the much drier forests of Cameroon, Zaire, Gabon, uh, even Tanzania. And this is, there's just more of it there. And those uh, countries are already producing a fair bit uh, of export lumber. Whereas the Congo and the DRC, they tend to be heavy in the Sapili market and the Udali market. Um, and Winge is, is a lesser export for them. Um, certainly some of it may be the availability in the forest, but more importantly, those industries are geared towards the mahogany-like woods, and they tend to walk past the Winge's in favor of the Sapilis. Some areas, that may be changing. But I do find that the climate and the difference in soil chemistry, the difference in the forests and the canopies in general, does produce a less brittle, more kind of friendly, user-friendly, workable winge. Now, can you go to your lumber dealer and say, I specifically want winge from the Congo? I suppose you could. Um, you might get a lot of shrugs and raised eyebrows and go, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, if the lumberyard imports it directly um, or buys it from an importer of record, you might have better chance in getting the traceability and sustainability back to the Congo. But one of the things about Africa as well is there's very few ports 
And a lot of the material comes into those ports and in many instances is repackaged into containers or not even repackaged, but initially packaged into containers at those ports. So you've got Congolese wenge and Cameroonian wenge and Gabonian wenge all coming in and being filled by larger export companies. They have an order for, you know, three containers of wenge. They're filling those three containers of wenge from whatever truck it comes from. So it can be particularly difficult. Um, there should be some sustainability tracer, some sustainability paperwork at that exporter level. And the importer will have copies of that as well. But um, seeing as the material is not controlled, um, that stuff is filed away and not really paid close attention. Moreover, you know, it's kind of personal, kind of anecdotal experience saying that Congo Winge is better than the other stuff and not really a strong enough reason, especially for the large commercial users of Winge. There's not really the strong enough reason to say, let's just buy Congolese Winge. But for those of you, and I've gotten a few emails since then, and that's what reminded me that I meant to say this. Those of you who are saying, you know, I can't stand Wenge. This stuff is absolutely horrible. It's this, it's bad this, it's bad that. And the other people saying, I don't know why it gets such a bad, uh, bad rap because I quite like it. That's the reason why. And this is going to be the case for most of the species we run into in the world that have a wide geographic distribution. You think about a species that is essentially available all across really Northern Africa, even mid-Africa. I don't know if Wenge grows in South Africa or not, to tell you the truth. Probably, but even then, it would be a very different workability. Different soil chemistry, different forests, different, a lot of stuff. Um, and you're going to find that to be the case with like Southeast Asian materials uh, coming from Northern uh, Asia down to Southern Asia, um, Totally, totally different climates, different environments. Europe is the same way. And of course, here in the United States and Canada, all across North America, same situation. The genuine mahogany market, oh my God, this is exacerbated to the nth degree from Central American mahogany, like Mexican mahogany, down to uh, Costa Rican mahogany, to Brazilian mahogany, to Bolivian mahogany, hell, Northern Brazilian mahogany and Southern Brazilian mahogany. Very, very different, even though it's the exact same species, it's going to present differently in color, it's going to present differently in workability, all due to those climate and soil chemistry type issues. So anyway, I wanted to definitely bring that up because I had had a few people who emailed me and said, you know, I can't believe you featured Wingay, or I'm so glad you featured Wingay. Um, and that's, that's the case. You got to love wood. It's organic. It uh, definitely keeps us on our toes. And the minute we make assumptions about it is the minute mother nature comes along and says, no, smacks you upside the head and says, I'm going to make it work this way. In other news, in my ongoing saga of elms don't grow that big because of Dutch elm disease, um, Mark Dubeck over at Winwood, uh, Winwood LLC. He's a uh, Winwood underscore LLC at Instagram or a winwoodmilling.com. He sent me a video of a slab of American elm that he just milled. It's 26 inches wide. Honestly, I don't remember how long it is. It's long. Um, it's probably at least eight feet long. Absolutely gorgeous American elm. I love that I'm discovering that there are some hardy elm trees out there. Um, and for whatever reason, they've come down, they're at least being salvaged. So I will say again, folks, keep an eye out for some elm. If you can find it, buy it. It's fantastic wood to work with. It's a totally different look than all the other stuff that's on the market right now. So just building a piece of 
plain whatever furniture out of American Elm is going to make it stand out. And if you happen to be in Oregon anywhere, check out Mark. Again, winwoodmilling.com. He's got some gorgeous American Elm. He put up a post uh, at time of recording, I say, less than a couple of days ago. So he should still at least have a couple slabs of elm. If not, he tells me he finds big elm trees all the time. So he might be a source for you. And uh, yeah, Mark, send me five bucks. <laughs> I'm kidding. Totally kidding. I want to spread the good wood news as far and as wide as I can. So for that matter, anybody out there listening knows of other Sawyers that regularly have elm or have any elm right now, drop me a line, lumberupdate at gmail.com or find me at um, lumberupdate, um, at lumberupdate on Instagram because I want to know and I want to spread the word because I want to get more people into this fantastic wood. Let's move away from that and let's talk about pine. Pine is fine, people. And it's so funny. So many woodworkers tend to say, ew, pine. Or uh, I get questions a lot at the hand tool school about, uh, well, I'm not a serious woodworker yet as I've only worked with pine. Or I'm looking forward to diving into my first real wood experience as up until now, I've only used pine. And you know, Tired of people bad-mouthing pine, because pine is indeed fine. And let's delve into it deeply. There's a lot to talk about here. It's gonna probably be tip of the iceberg. Um, and if you have additional follow-up questions, let me know what they are. Um, I hope to be able to cover as much as I can in this episode, but I'm bound to miss something. So fasten your seatbelts, hang on tight, grab yourself a cup of turpentine. No, no, don't do that, that's bad. Um, Turpentine comes from pine, in case you weren't aware. The terpene extractives in pine generates turpentine. Um, it is an all-natural product, but not one that I would recommend putting in a mug and drinking. Definitely don't do that. Anyway, let's talk about pine. So let's start by talking about what I'm not talking about. This episode is about pine. Well, the first thing most people think of when they think of pine is two-by-fours, two-by-sixes construction lumber. And if you go to a big box store, you'll see your construction lumber there. And it generally is marked as SPF. Sometimes it might be marked as P or PL. Uh, SPF is, stands for spruce pine fir. P and PL is a uh, ponderosa, ponderosa lodgepole. That's much less common, but out in the Western states, you may, you may run into that, uh, especially in some more utility decking type stuff. You might see that Ponderosa, Ponderosa Lodge Bowl. But for the most part, construction materials labeled as SPF, spruce, pine, fir. Um, really, what it comes down to is construction lumber is grown harvested cut for strength. It is not at all about appearance and there's all kinds of things, grades and tests and things that it must meet in order to be a structural member. If you're gonna build a wall or, or a deck or something out of this structural material, it needs to make sure it meets structural demands. These species, as well as the grading that they go through and the way it's cut, the way it's grown and harvested for that matter, all means that it can uh, equate to a structural uh, construction piece of lumber. Out east, the species that this comes from are the spruces, white spruce, black spruce, red spruce. It comes from jack pine and balsam fir. Out west, you're gonna find Engelman spruce, some white spruce, some lodgepole pine, and some alpine fir. You know, you notice 
there's very little pine. Like most of the construction lumber is actually built from spruce. And if you look at typical two by fours, two by sixes, two by eights, et cetera, it's a very white wood. There's very little contrast between early wood and late wood, which is very indicative of the, the whiter woods like spruce and fir. Not Douglas fir, but if you might remember, Douglas fir is not actually a fir. Fir comes from the Abies generous, uh, generous genre, and um, Douglas fir is a pseudosugi. It's a, it's a, it's not quite a fir. The true firs, the true spruces, are very white woods. Very little contrast between early wood and late wood. For that matter, the pines, um, like the jack pine, is also a species that isn't doesn't have a whole lot of, of contrast there. So it's interesting, though most people think of pine when they think of construction lumber, very little of a construction lumber is comprised of actual pine. It's spruces and firs primarily. And I'm even hesitant to say in the east you get this, in the west you get this. Construction lumber is so widely trucked back and forth across the country that it's very heavily intermixed. But the other important part is, is all of the species that I just mentioned, regardless of east or west, they all have very similar technical properties and they can actually be very difficult to tell them apart, which is why they all just get lumped into the spruce pine fir. And that is why that's not what we're talking about because it's not really a whole lot of, of pine. What I really wanna talk about is air quotes here, liberal air quotes, real wood. More importantly, actual pine that's used for lumber purposes, not construction lumber purposes. Think of this like hardwood lumber. And it's interesting, at my yard anyway, like Northeastern white pine, we inventory it and sell it like we would any other hardwood. A lot of our softer wood species that tend to um, be treated and used a little bit differently, we inventory them differently. And this is what you'll find with a lot of the, again, liberal air quotes usage here, real pine is that it tends to be treated more like a hardwood. Um, if you wanna get really hoity-toity here, finer woodworking pine as compared to construction lumber pine. So it's really important to make that distinction. But the other thing is, the reason I really wanna focus on pine is that the Pinus genus is huge. It's enormous and it's really, really old. So I think we don't wanna mess things up and talk about spruce and fir because A, those are the newcomers, but B, pine is so interesting all by itself. The Pinus genus has more than 100 species. Um, this is rivaled only by the Quercus um, and the Eucalyptus genre, so the, the oaks and the Eucalyptus. But the thing is, the, the Quercus and the Eucalyptus are young. They showed up in the Cenozoic era, like midway through. They're really not particularly old. The Pinus genus goes all the way back into the Mesozoic. Like 200 million years ago, pine trees were standing amongst the dinosaurs. That's how old this is. But as, and it's particularly interesting because the genus today is broken into sub-genera. Um, there is the Pinus, well, Pinus is the overall genus. There is also a Pinus subgenus. There is a Strobus subgenus. And I believe red pine has its own subgenus, but now I'm not remembering. It's really, really, there's probably a few other subgenre in there, like some of the weird guys, like the pinion pines and things like that. But I think there may also be some debate as to whether or not those are official subgenus. So mostly we're looking at two subgenus 
two subgenera, Pinus and Strobus. Please don't, if you're really advanced and you're already ahead of me going, wait a minute, I thought Pinus strobus was Eastern white pine. Pinus strobus is the taxonomic name for Eastern white pine. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. But why the genus ended up splitting into subgenus genera is particularly interesting. And it is a story told in the Mesozoic. So back in the Cretaceous period, as angiosperms, what we think of as deciduous trees, for the most part hardwoods, as they began to evolve, they created a significant amount of competition for the you know, salty old pine trees that had been around for millions of years already. Um, the angiosperms in many ways were superior. They were able to outcompete the pine trees in a big way. So the pine trees, they had a council and they said, hey, if we're going to continue, we've either got to evolve to compete with the angiosperms or we're just going to go where the angiosperms aren't. And this is really what has happened and why we see the pine trees as we see them today. They essentially evolved into trees that thrived in tough conditions where those weakling hardwoods couldn't cut it, where they couldn't survive. They went to heavy fire prone areas. They went to dry areas, sandy soil areas, harsher um, alpine environments, or any environment that from a biologic perspective is, is particularly harsh. You know, not a lot of food um, and, and the other trees just couldn't cut it. So the pine trees evolved to cut it where no one else could. In other words, in the marketing world, we call that the blue ocean syndrome. Don't compete. Find the blue water where there's no chum and the sharks are feeding. Find the nice wide open blue water and you don't have to worry about competing. And this is what caused the deviation between the subgenre pinus and the subgenre strobus. And... Bear with me here, because this actually answers a lot of the questions that I have later on in the show. So the Pinus subgenus is really our yellow pines, our hard pines. These are the pines that fire adapted. They said, okay, I'm going to choose not to compete, but going and hanging out in areas that get a lot of fire. And all those angiosperms burn down and I'm gonna remain. So these have thicker barks. Um, to protect against fire. Their dead branches are shed. So you find these kind of long straight trunks and the branches are way, way up high. And when the branches die off, they drop them. And that's how they end up as the tree grows. You end up with that kind of branch-free long trunk. Those branches, well, think about it. Start any campfire. And if you stick a big old log on the campfire, it will never start. What we do is we get tiny little branches called kindling to start that fire. So if a fire goes through it's going to catch all those lower branches on fire. Well, if you have dead little branches low to the ground, the fire can climb that tree like a ladder, get to the canopy where you have all the needles and the really flammable stuff and light the whole tree on fire. But if a fire resistant tree says, uh -uh -uh, I'm dropping all my dead branches. So when the fire hits that trunk, it's trying to burn that trunk. And it's the same issue you have with throwing a big old log on the fire. It will never, never catch. These um, and, and I'm speaking really specifically of the ponderosa pine here. Um, it is in the pinus subgenus, um, pinus ponderosa. It has really, really thick, heavy bark and it drops all of its trees. It grows super, super tall. Um, it keeps all of the flammable like uh, needles and things like that up at the top of the canopy. In other respects, the trees adapted to fire by making themselves more flammable. 
So the lodgepole pine, Pinus contorta, is a good example of this, filled with resin. And actually, the, the yellow and the harder pines are yellow and harder because of the high amounts of resin. Well, you think, well, the resin is flammable. Like, go and buy fat wood at the big box store that's used to start your wood. That's just resin full yellow pine. Well, you think, how is this fire resistant if it's actually meant to catch on fire? Well, propagation is created by fire. So all the cones in the lodgepole and many of the other in the pinus subgenus are fused shut with resin, and it's nearly impossible to get to the seeds. The only way you can get to those seeds is with high heat. Fire heats up the resin, melts the resin, and allows the cone to open and disperse its seeds. So lodgepole pines love fire. They actually seek out fire in order to propagate. It's a very selfless thing when you think about. I want to continue my line by killing myself in fire. So they grow out of a flammable material. Now the lodgepole doesn't tend to shed its lower branches, so it allows that ladder fire to climb up the tree, um, warm up all those cones, and and have the seed spread that way. And lodgepole forests are designed to take root. You know, the competition, if competition starts to, to creep up from angiosperms and things like that, fire comes through, wipes out all the angiosperms, wipes out all the undergrowth, wipes out the lodgepole pines. Maybe they still have thicker bark and things like that to protect against fire, but they also drop the cones and they see the fire opens those cones and seeds more lodgepole. And then a couple years later, there's a forest of nothing but lodgepole pines and it's sitting there laughing because all the competition was literally burned out. This is what has happened with the Pinus subgenus. And in this, we've got your southern yellow pine group. That's your loblollies, your slash pines, your shortleaf pines, Virginia pines, longleaf pines. Very abrupt contrast from early wood to late wood um, with all of that resin and very, very hard. You're talking 690 Janka for a lot of these. Then you've got your western yellow pine group again in the ponda and excuse me in the pinus subgenus but these are the lodgepole pines the ponderosa pines jack pines um, and the radiata pines these are kind of midway between what we think of as southern yellow pine we think of hard resinous pine that's your southern yellows loblolly slash etc the western yellow pines are not quite as yellow don't have quite as much resin lower density and therefore slightly lesser hardness for the most part you're talking 420 450 for your lodgepole ponderosa pines jack pines radiata etc they are still yellow pines they are still um, seeking out in some areas seeking out fire or seeking to outlast the fire, um, but not quite as hard and heavy as the southern yellows. And then this is where some argument comes in amongst botanists. The red pine group, I would still consider to be part of the pinus subgenus, but the red pine is quite small. You have red pine, you find that a lot in Michigan, and then European pine, Scots pine, uh, Pinus sylvestra and Austrian pine or Pinus nigra. These are, again, they're yellow pines. They have a stark early to late wood contrast. They have not quite yellow, but a little bit more of a reddish hue due to the higher resin content in them. Again, these are the pines that sought to outdo the competition by becoming fire adapted. And I would say the Southern yellow group is the most fire adapted. The western yellow pines are lesser fire adapted and the red pines the least amount of fire adapted. So that's the spectrum from, from most fire adapted to, to lowest, southern yellow, western yellow, and red pine. But then you have the other subgenus, 
strobus. These are the white pines. These are uh, sought to outcompete by doing well in alpine settings where there's very little food and high wind, biologically harsh settings where there is a, a hell of a lot of competition and they can compete this way by uh, doing well in really, really sandy soil or doing well in kind of swampy soil or in some instances outcompeting by becoming part of the mid-story or not quite the understory. And again, little, little vocabulary here. In the forest, you have the canopy. That's the top. That's the part that's getting all the sunlight. Then you've got the understory. Everything that's under the canopy that's in the shade is known as the understory. Those mid-story trees are gonna be hanging out between the canopy and the ground, and your understory, your, your first story, if you will, those are your really, really short trees, your ornamental trees, or possibly your brush, underbrush, and things like that. Some of these strobus uh, subgenus trees chose to say, okay, I'm going to hang out in that mid-story and I'm going to be sheltered and I'm going to deal with less nutrients because the overstory, the canopy trees are taking the majority of the nutrients and they're living off the leftovers. But then there's other instances where like the Eastern white pine, for example, it's not particularly fire resistant, but what it does is it grows super fast and super tall and it pokes up above the canopy. Now it is it can still do that on poor quality soil, sandy soils and things like that. It's able to grow very, very quickly. Um, whereas like a deciduous tree may really, really struggle. So it, in other words, gets to the sunlight before the deciduous trees and it continues to get its nutrients while the, the lower trees are kind of struggling for that. But because of this, these trees are growing in, in worse soil, but better conditions, more temperate conditions and they have very little early to late wood contrast and very little color. They're white woods because they're not heavy in resin. They're not, you know, attracting the fire and things like that. Quite a bit softer. You know, your eastern white pine is going to be like 360 Janka hardness. Um, this strobus group, like the ones that we really care about, I mean, there's quite a few of them here, but eastern white pine, western white pine, and sugar pines, Pinus lambertina. These are really the ones that we most need to think about. But there's a bunch of other species. As I mentioned, there's more than 100 species in the genus. Um, there's a bunch of other species that show up here, but honestly, not nearly as much as you find in the yellow pine or the Pinus sub genus. So this all happened. The evolutionary struggle here was let's split apart. We're still pines. We're still in the pinus family or excuse me, pinus genus, but we've differentiated into subgenre, one to be okay with fire and one to deal with really bad soil or, or possible adverse conditions like alpine conditions. You then have kind of gray areas here. And like I was talking about with the red pine um, section, the Austrian pines, the Scots pines, and the red pines, they tend to be kind of halfway between the white pines, the strobus subgenus, and the pinus, like the really, really hard loblollies and shortleaf pines and things like that. And then the western yellow pines are, are again, a little bit whiter, kind of getting closer to that strobus genus, but they are still definitely fire adapted in that pinus genus. So there's a lot going on here. It's, it's really fascinating and you can start to separate this even more. Um, I read a really cool paper that was essentially hypothesizing that this split in the genus, the evolution was 
um, not so much about becoming fire adaptive. I mean, certainly it was about becoming fire adapted, but being adapted to certain types of fires. So um, what I guess the official term would that I read was fire regimes. So you've got fires that that blow through the forest and igniting the brush and kind of stay at ground level. And then you have crown fires that catch the canopy itself on fire. And some of the yellow pines are adapted um, to grow up and avoid the, the ground fires. Uh, and that's how they're fire adapted. They grow super, super tall. The ponderosa is a good example of this. It drops all its lower branches, it grows super tall, and all the fuel is up in the canopy. So a ground fire, it's adapted to a ground fire in areas where there would be more ground fires. Whereas other, um, other yellow pines adapted to crown fires, um, and the Pinus contorta is a good example of this. It tends to be, well, sorry, that's the lodgepole pine. It's a little bit more contorted tree. It doesn't grow nearly as tall. It lets the other trees grow tall. So when that crown fire happens, it's just hanging out in the understory being just fine. Um, so it's really interesting this, this, and I don't know whether any of this stuff, there's enough research to say it's proven or not. He phrases it very much from the perspective of, uh, an hypothesis. Sorry, I'm saying he, um, this is a, a paper called Ecology and Evolution of Pine Life Histories by John E. Keeley. I found it in the Annals of Forest Science. Really fascinating. Um, I'll actually point a link to this because it's not a super, super long read. It is very, very technical, but it's kind of, it's really cool when you start thinking about the geologic time period that the split in genre has happened. And it really, from a woodworking and a lumber industry perspective, it explains a lot explains why we have like white pines and yellow pines and why in many instances they tend to be grouped together and tend to be marketed as yellow pine or southern yellow pine and you know when you're buying southern yellow pine you could be buying short leaf or long leaf pine or virginia pine or loblolly pine coastal pine or slash pine they're close enough in working properties and technical properties that they're they're not really going to separate them apart and from an identification perspective they're really difficult to tell apart. Like sometimes it's minuscule differences in the size of the resin canals um, or maybe a minuscule difference in the size of the tracheid. These are the things that from a, from a lumber industry perspective, we kind of don't care and they all get lumped together. So if you were to go into a lumber yard and say, I want loblolly pine, they're going to look at you like you're crazy. But if you say, I want southern yellow pine, they're going to point you to the southern yellow pine and it's probably going to be five different species all lumped together and you're not going to be able to tell one from the other. Same thing with the Western yellow pine group. You're gonna find that they definitely look different than the Southern yellow pines, but differentiating the lodgepole from the ponderosa, from the jack, from the radiata, you know, it's just not gonna happen. So with that kind of history lesson in place, it's really interesting to see how this, this deviation has happened. Even though they're in the same genre, they're different species, dramatically different working properties, which, Kind of leads me to uh, the first question I got from Justin. He says, what makes Southern yellow pine so much different than almost any other pines I've encountered? I was used to Ponderosa pine growing up in Colorado. Then I moved to Oklahoma and I found Southern yellow pine. So let's talk about this from a working property perspective. He was used to Ponderosa, Pinus Ponderosa, 460 Jenka hardness. It is a yellow pine as we talked about, but kind of in the more alpine regions, um, it is fire, fire tolerant, but less resinous than the Southern yellow pines. Ponderosa pine is a Western yellow pine. So less resin, 
um, therefore less lower density, meaning that Janka hardness is 460. Now let's look at a specific species in the Southern yellow pine, shortleaf pine. Um, very yellow. Like when you think yellow pine, it's shortleaf pine. Very yellow, dramatic, dramatic contrast between early and late growth. Like to the point where it's almost like the late growth looks kind of crystalline. You can see that kind of hardened amber look in the late wood. So much, much higher density and therefore a higher Janko hardness of 690. So again, 690 versus 460. Totally different working property. And again, because of that dramatic abrupt transition from early to late wood, you've got that like kind of hard, really hard, kind of hard, really hard as you're moving a chisel or a plane or a saw across those growth rings. Ponderosa is going to have abrupt transitions, but with a lower density and lower resin, it's not going to be quite so hard. So again, softer all around, some hardness differences from early to late growth, but not nearly as dramatic. Now, Janka hardness is an average across the entire wood. If you were to do a Janka hardness test of just the early wood and the late wood, you would probably find that the, the late wood is much harder and the early wood is even a little bit softer. And that's how we get that, that average of 690 or 460 here. So that's really the big difference is that evolutionary adaptation. As you move into Oklahoma, you move further south and kind of out of the mountains, you're moving into very arid regions and you're starting to get a different type of fire adaptation that's happened here. But then you're also starting to move into starting to trend towards the Gulf side of things where you're going to have um, a lot more um, uh, uh, um, consistent growing period, if you will, and allowed for a slower growing period and denser material here. So um, the the transition from, from Colorado to Oklahoma is not nearly as stark as like Colorado to Mississippi. And that's when you really see that crazy difference between Ponderosa or Lodgepole and like shortleaf, uh, loblolly pines, things like that. So again, this evolutionary track, same, you know, family, same genus even, but due to the adaptation to the different climates and because pine is grows, uh, pine trees grow all over the world, you have to expect this type of the differentiation here. So Alan had a fun question. He said, if you were a pine, what kind would you be? And I kind of like this because uh, I think I would be a ponderosa pine. Um, they're very tall, kind of lanky. Um, they drop their branches very early. So you get this like long straight trunk. Well, um, my legs are longer than my torso. I have a longer leg length than torso length. I am not even, I am not a Vitruvian man. Sorry. Um, <laughs> when, it, when I do gain weight, I tend to carry it in the upper part of my body and I end up with like skinny stick legs. So yeah, I'm a ponderosa pine. Um, very thick skin developed from decades of posting videos online. Um, I have a very high VO2 max. Uh, so I do well in, in high altitude where the ponderosa does very well as well. So yeah, kind of a silly question. Um, I also find that uh, I don't have nearly as dramatic early to late with transition because I grew up in a very white bread Air Force base community. <laughs> So yeah, I'm a ponderosa pine. Little silly break in the serious scientific talk here. Um, but Alan does go on to say, what is this mysterious sugar pine that Christopher Shores has written about? Great question, which actually leads me to a question from Sean, who says, what are the key differences between sugar pine on the West Coast versus white pine on the East Coast? Um, 
Also, a uh, secondary question, it would be helpful for any ideas to eliminate sap effusing from pine even after it is dried. It's a problem I've had with Douglas fir, which I understand may not be a true pine. No, it is definitely not a true pine. It's not even a true fir. Um, so let, let's look at this. First of all, the key difference between sugar pine and uh, eastern white pine, or even really western white pine. Um, both of them, again, these are all um, sugar pine, western and eastern white pine are in the strobus subgenus. These are the white pines. Um, very little contrast from early growth to late growth and very little resin, hence white rather than, than yellow. All three of them are about 380 Janka hardness, so they're quite soft. Um, the eastern white pine grows very tall, very straight. Um, it was favored for shipbuilding for, for that reason. In fact, uh, wasn't there like, like the, the Boston Tea Party is what most people think of of the Revolutionary War. There was a pine riot where the colonists just got fed up of the king coming in and marking all the, the prime eastern white pines for the British Navy. And they got tired of like, oh, I want that tree for my cabin. I want that tree for this, for my own ship or for my own, you know, courthouse building. And it was earmarked for the king already. And they got really ticked about that. That caused the pine riots, which was one of the other sparks that ignited the Revolutionary War. So eastern white pine grows very, very tall, very, very straight. The western white pine doesn't grow nearly as tall. It's a little bit more stunted. It doesn't quite have the nutrients available to the eastern white pine. But again, very difficult to tell apart. If you cut open a log and cut them into boards, very difficult to tell apart. Pinus lambertina or sugar pine, gonna be similar, difficult to tell apart. A very big tree, a very big tree. Um, the sugar pine is actually the biggest of the three. But moreover, and, and interestingly enough, much coarser texture. It's got larger tracheids. So it's kind of like the oak of white pines. It, it's coarser grain to it. But in addition to being a huge tree with long pieces available, um, versus the even smaller, even though eastern white pine is quite large, it's still smaller than the sugar pine. The real thing is the dimensional stability. Sugar pine has a stability of about 1.9 TR versus the eastern and western white pines are about 2.9. Because it's relatively soft, sugar pine is soft and dimensionally stable and pretty much smooth grain, even though it's the coarser of the three when it comes to grains, it was highly prized for pattern making. Um, you could get it in super big um, sizes. So it excelled, it became like the amazing wood. It was super, super clear. And one of the reasons that Chris Schroers writes about it, this, this mythical beast is you could get like 12 quarter or six by six pieces that were absolutely 100% clear. And because it's so dimensionally stable, there wouldn't be a lot of checking either. And it would just be this beautifully kind of homogenous grain, perfect for sculpting, AKA pattern making. And I can tell you when I go back into the ledgers of the company I work for, and I go back a hundred years, 150 years, and I look at the sheer volume of sugar pine that was being sold, I mean, rail cars and rail cars full of sugar pine, that we sold to um, the auto industry, that we sold, we sold to uh, steel manufacturers looking to make patterns for molds, um, sold to uh, millwork houses that were making plaster, uh, plaster moldings and things like that, sold a huge amount of sugar pine to the federal government, to um, the Smithsonian, to the Capitol building, things like that. This was where you could just get big all hunks of very homogenous grain white pine, and that was sugar pine. Um, 
it's still out there, um, but I think what you find more than anything is it's diluted with the other white woods. What's happened is that southern, that spruce pine fir thing that's took over construction, um, that's a whole industry into itself. The demand for sugar pine has fallen off in that we don't need really pattern makers anymore. We have rapid prototyping with 3D printers and such. Um, there's not a whole lot of casting going on in the world anymore. Um, so the sugar pine has just kind of fallen into disuse. There's not an industry built around uh, creating sugar pine for you know pattern making. So it's, pine is still relatively cheap. It's still a commodity price. And unless there's a distinct reason to harvest sugar pine, no one's going to do it. So it all gets kind of lumped into white pines. And, and it's possible that when you go to your big box store or even go to your quote real lumber yard and buy a white pine, you might actually be getting some sugar pine. If you find that it's particularly clear, it might be sugar pine, but you also have some difficulty in telling them apart. It is a coarser grain, um, but unless you really know your pines, you might have some trouble with that. Great question about the sugar pine. Um, it's not endangered in the slightest either. It's just the industry is not there anymore to necessitate its growth. So let's go to kind of an unusual pine. Um, Ethan wrote in and he says, I'd love to hear more about the Tory pine. It grows here in Southern California and my local urban sawyer often has it available in gigantic slabs. I'd like to know how it compares to more familiar species. Well, here's the thing. The Tory pine is actually an endangered pine. Um, it, due to its extremely narrow range, it grows in the wild, like in Santa Barbara and like an island off the coast of Santa Barbara. And that's it. Like, that's it. Um, now you find it all across Southern California because it's been planted and cultivated because it is a fast growing tree. Um, and it's pretty. Um, so it gets used for city planters all the time. So you find them all over the place. I guarantee you, Ethan, the Sawyer that you're talking to, He's not sawing wild southern yellow pine. I believe that's illegal. I'm not exactly certain, but if he is, he's bad because that is an endangered species growing in the wild. But here's the thing. The wild Tory pine doesn't grow particularly big. Uh, it's kind of gnarled. Think of like pinyon pine in like high altitude regions. This is like the coastal equivalent. It grows in very poor sandy soil, high wind conditions. So it stays squat and low to the ground. It has a contorted trunk terrible, terrible lumberwood. But when they started cultivating and planting it as an ornamental tree in better soils, it grew great. It grew nice and straight and wide and turned into these great big trunks. And um, Ethan says he's got this sawyer that has huge slabs. That in and of itself tells you that these are second, third, fourth growth trees planted by city planters. Um, and because of its fast growing nature and the fact that it can kind of fill in space very quickly, offer wind breaks against the Santa Ana winds, you'll find them all over the place in cultivated varieties. Now, as far as how it works, I honestly don't know. I did a lot of digging and I couldn't find any working properties here. I dug up the family tree a little bit to try to find out a little bit more about it. Um, it is a yellow pine, is in the Pinus genus, um, but there wasn't really a lot more there. So my challenge to you, Ethan, is to go back to that Sawyer and buy some of that stuff and find out how it works. Now, I guarantee you, it's not gonna work the same as wild Tory pine. Wild Tory pine is probably going to be ridiculously hard, super interlock grain, like dealing, like trying to work with root stock. 
um, because of the way it grows. I do know people who work with pinion pine, also a, a, a no-no. <laughs> those trees are, are uh, thousands of years old. Please don't cut those down. Um, but it is incredibly, pinion pine is an incredibly hard wood. I suspect tory pine to be very much the same way, just looking at the morphology of the tree. But when you put it in a cultivated region with better soil and it grows super fast and super straight, it's going to be totally different. And I suspect um, it's going to work closer to Western yellow pine, as far as I could tell. But I could be totally wrong there. If it is particularly fire adapted, it could be more like the harder pines. So I would suspect its hardness to be, I'm going to be vague here, but somewhere between 600 and 400. I doubt it will get as low as like the white pines in like the 360 range. So let's just say 500 is what I would guess, but it's a total guess. So I throw it out to you, Ethan, go buy some Tory pine. Dear listeners, if you've ever worked with Tory pine, I would love to know your feedback. This is one of those unusual species that in the wild is incredibly rare and no one's cutting it down because it's endangered and it's illegal, but in a cultivated nature, it's gonna be probably a totally different species. There's probably people out there working with it who don't even know they're working with Tory pine. Um, and hopefully with more urban sawyers around, we are seeing more Tory pine in there because it continues to be highly planted um, because of its fast growth rate. So interesting little um, little side trip there, but it again shows you that you know this evolutionary track can kind of help you hone in on how something might work even when you can't find any data about it. So speaking of endangered trees like the Torrey pine, Jonathan asks, what is, are there any sustainability differences and things to think about or be concerned with when it comes to buying pine? So shorter answer is no. Um, nearly all the pines, like 99.9% .9 of the pines are viewed as quote, least concern in concert when it comes to being endangered. Uh, also the same thing with availability. They're everywhere. There are hundreds of species in the genus and they're all over the globe from Australia to Asia, to Europe, to North America, to South America. They're all over the place. And those sub genera still exist. They still are there to kind of help you out. The random ones, like some of the taxidium ones and some of the weird guys that you might find um, in the high mountains of, of South America or possibly in New Zealand and things like that, um, like the, the monkey paw, that's not a pine, um, but uh, you know things like those weird trees tend to kind of roll up under some of these really, really ancient, ancient genus. But um, for the most part, they're going to be Pinus subgenus or strobus subgenus, and you can kind of learn from there. But as far as their availability, it's not a matter of, ooh, I shouldn't buy loblolly pine um, and I should buy shortleaf pine. A, you're probably not going to have that option because, again, they're all sold as short southern yellow pine. Um, the bigger issue is not sustainability. Um, within the southern yellow pines and the western yellow pines or the white pines, it's more about diversity within those grander marketing products, those grander marketed products. So let's break them down to the white pines, the southern yellow pines, and the western yellow pines. Um, in the southern yellow pine group, you're going to be buying loblaw, you're going to buy slash pine and Virginia pine and longleaf and shortleaf. But the lack of diversity within that, as Southern Yellow Pine, as a marketing term, has become a big business, we're growing it as fast as we can to meet the demand. And the forests are incredibly healthy, AKA of least concern. 
But what happens is you start to grow all of these species for the same product. The sawyers, excuse me, the foresters themselves start to stop thinking about them as different species and as one particular product. And they all get lumped together. They all get planted together. And each individual species is going to have certain competitive advantages in certain geographic climates. Longleaf pine has a slightly different geographic distribution than shortleaf pine. There's a reason the leaves are longer. Leaves are the same as needles, by the way. Um, there's a reason the leaves are longer in the longleaf and the leaves are shorter in the shortleaf. That's, that's an evolutionary adaptation based upon its geographic range. There's a reason the loblolly pine. Um, loblolly, if I remember correctly, it, the etymology of the name comes from like murky, bubbling, like bubbling stew because it grows in like murky swampland um, and really, really nasty lowland riparian type areas. Um, the loblolly has a different geographic distribution, but it's still a southern yellow pine. Well, as we start planting them, like broadcast seeding them, imagine your fertilizer spreader, you're putting in southern yellow pine seeds, which could be, you know, five different species. You're broadcast spreading them across one area, planting them all as one. They're all growing up as one. And what's starting to happen is the longleaf is starting to get outcompeted from the short leaves and the slashes and things like that. I shouldn't say outcompeted, the geographic range is shrinking. Um, as the short leaf outcompetes on the fringes of the longleaf territory, longleaf is losing and its geographic range is starting to shrink. So there are um, coalitions, associations out there like the Longleaf Alliance and things like that that are trying to expand the natural geographic distribution, the natural geographic range of longleaf because it's shrunken due to the industry that is southern yellow pine. <clears throat> the same thing could happen with western yellow pine, although there are other issues at play there like beetles and fungus that are affecting some of that. So as those trades get bigger and bigger, and although they have no problem keeping up with demand, the gene pool is getting a little diluted and the borders between geographic distribution has started to get blurred and some of the species that might have done well before are starting to shrink. Is that something to be concerned about? Certainly, from a biological diversity perspective, monoculture is never a great idea. From a buying perspective, I don't think so. They're all being sustainably managed at this point because the demand is super high all around the globe for yellow pine. And there's really no concern there from a botanical perspective, from just being a steward of our planet perspective. I do think we should, there should be you know, a greater uh, effort to preserve the longleaf pine. The problem is how? How do you do that? You don't go to a lumber store and say, I want Southern yellow pine, but I don't want any longleaf pine. No one's gonna be able to do that for you. It's not grown that way, harvested, cut, or sold that way. Um, and look at, like, go to the wood database and look up longleaf and shortleaf pine and see if you can tell the difference. Pull out your magnifying glass and look at the ingrain and see if you can tell the difference. Like, I can't, it's really hard. So. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is there. I don't think it's something we need to be super concerned about. Now, anybody who's a member of the Longleaf Alliance that wants to come on the show and tell me why I should be concerned about it, I would love to talk to you about it. But the short answer to this, Jonathan, is, is not really. And even if there was a concern, I'm not sure what you would do about it. Like, you're not going to be able to tell the difference, really, between eastern white pine, western white pine, and sugar pine. Very difficult. Red pines, 
Um, Austrian and Scots pine, again, very difficult. I think you might find the Austrian pine has more knots in it, but that depends upon silvicultural methods and how it's grown. Whole other thing, which I will get to in just a second. Um, if you can't tell, this one might be a long episode. <laughs> Where am I? Yeah, we're approaching an hour right now. Let's see if I can try to land this plane here. But let's talk a little bit about sustainability from another perspective. This goes into Alex's question about beetle kill pine. He says, I'm interested in hearing about how the lumber market for beetle kill pine operates since it is a desired trait, but it kills off the tree. Not only do I want to know about the mechanics of how it gets the color, but also the balancing act of managing, managing the supply and the demand. Is beetle kill pine just a pine thing? Uh, and what species or subspecies are most susceptible to it? So as I said before, um, there are issues in and amongst the Western yellow pines um, where diversification is not is becoming more of an issue because of beetle kill pine, because of blights that are taking out, really going after the lodgepole. So let's answer Alex's question in reverse. What species are subject to it? It's really a pine problem. It's not affecting the spruces and the firs, but that's also a geographic distribution thing. Where the beetles are and where the fungus is isn't in areas where you're finding a lot of spruce and fir. It's where you're finding pine. It's where you're finding lodgepole pine and ponderosa pine. The pines that are susceptible to it are ponderosa, lodgepole, limber, and scotch pines. Now, that's not to say that the beetles are not going to, the mountain beetles not going to go attack some other kind. They're just going with what's around at this point. So the mechanism here, and by the way, I mentioned the Completely Arbitrary podcast in the past. Um, unfortunately, they don't number their episodes, but the episode they did on the lodgepole pine, it's called Death by a Thousand Beetles. Um, if you go to completely arbitrarypod.com, you can find it or just look it up in their feed. There's a really great, it's a great episode that goes into a lot of, of intense scientific detail on the beetle blight. <clears throat> but what's happening is there is a fungus that these beetles feed on. Both of them are native. They're, it's not like the emerald ash borer where it came in from Asia. The, the mountain beetle is a native beetle to the Rocky Mountains. The fungus is native to the Rocky Mountains. The fungus is what causes the blue staining. The fungus in and of itself is blue. Um, go back to episode 58 of this podcast about um, staining, and I talk a little bit more about what's going on there, but ultimately the fungus stains the wood. Very much like spalting happens. This fungus stains it blue, and as the tree dies, the fungus kind of takes hold a little bit more. So like AKA, not AKA, quote, the best, beetle kill pine is the pine that's been dead and a standing stump for like three to four years. Because while it's dead and standing, the fungus is allowed to kind of get deeper and darker and you get more staining that happens. When a tree dies from beetle kill, harvesting it right then, you'll have some mineral staining, but not as much. The best stuff comes from the stump standing there dead for like four years. Um, and that's what causes that staining is the fungus kind of continuing to, to propagate throughout. The beetles feed on the fungus, but then the beetles then bore holes and, and lay eggs. And the boring of the holes and the fungus stops up the phloem, which is what allows the nutrients to go up the cambium layer to feed the tree. Um, so very much like the emerald ash borer, it's cutting off the tree's food source. And that's why it kills the tree. 
the incessant boring of, of galleries for laying of eggs and things also weakens the tree. It also stops up the phloem and it just causes real problems. So um, it's a catch-22 here. Uh, the fungus is naturally occurring. The beetles are attracted to the fungus and the beetles kill the tree. The tree dies. The beetles go somewhere else. The fungus goes out of control and turns that super stained lumber, um, turns it into super stained lumber. So that's the mechanism. Um, but overall, supply and demand here. The market for beetle kill pine, blue stained pine, is actually quite small when you consider it as of now, 100 million acres have been killed by the blight. Add to that the fact that the market for beetle kill pine, not only is it small, it's super niched and it's very expensive. There's a high cost for the harvest and milling due to the heavy defect nature. All of those boring, all that boring insects in all the galleries produces punky wood. It produces a lot of defects in the wood that you're essentially cutting around. There's a huge amount of waste that comes out of one of these logs. Getting the good stuff takes a lot and the good stuff still tends to be kind of narrow and short. There is no such thing as grading. It's just beetle gill pine. So the harder the harder way to get to the wood, the lower yield of the wood, and the lack of grading means that the large mills and like those spruce pine fir producers, not interested. It's not a game they play in. So what is beetle kill pine used for? It's used for flooring. Um, it's used for some panel work, but in very limited quantities. Uh, and that's it. It's it's a it's an oddity. It's like it's like a reclaimed wood or um, any, well, even small thing, any kind of stained wood, it's an acquired taste and it's used in small amounts. So while it's popular, popular as compared to like, you know, spruce pine fir, it's a blip and it's too expensive to deal with. So the people who are harvesting it are harvesting it specifically for the beetle kill. They know what they're getting into. They're able to handle the costs and they're able to mark up the finished product in order to sell it. But in the end, 100 million acres of really dense forest is way more supply than the current demand. And I really think the current demand, even forecasted growth of the demand, I don't think we'll get to the point. It's truly an acquired taste. So it's really not an issue to keep up with it. Ultimately, the market the demand for blue stained pine means that there are companies going out there and removing the standing dead timber. Now, a lot of people say, well, this is helping, you know, standing dead timber is bad for forests. So removing the standing dead timber uh, uh, helps prevent forest fires. This is actually erroneous. Going back to my original uh, topic about how lighting a log on fire is harder than lighting branches on fire. While those dead trees are certainly drying out um, and starting to rot on the stump, they're still not, fire doesn't like them. Fire won't light them very much. Um, they won't start a fire. It's the underbrush that's starting a fire or the dead tree once it's fallen over that is what's causing the fire. So the standing trees are not the problem. It's the fact that 
well, we write them off and we leave them there to fall over. When they fall over, now it becomes tender. Now it's kindling. Now it causes forest fires. So the market demanding them is good because it's creating a demand for those standing dead trunks. Now, as I said before, they leave them standing for a while to get the best staining, but they do eventually go and cut them down before they get so rotten that they fall over and become kindling. That's a good thing. When you've got 100 million acres of standing dead trees, eventually they're all going to fall over. And then, oh my God, the Armageddon that's going to occur when all of that goes up in flames. So this market is great for protecting against forest fires. But it's a catch-22. I'm not on video here. I'm shaking my head in disgust because it's a real catch-22 here. The market is removing the dead timber. The dead timber thins out the forest, which makes for healthier trees. Um, healthier trees are good because the attack, the beetle attack happens on a stressed tree. Beetles are going after a tree that can't really fight back because a healthy tree, when the beetles start cutting into it, the tree reacts, it compartmentalizes, and it literally pushes the beetles out on sap. That tree's healthy, it's got plenty of sap, and it's able to push the beetles out, knock the beetles out of the tree, and it, it recovers. Beetle kill, when the, the mountain beetle attacks a tree, the tree's fate is not sealed. The trees can fight back if the tree is healthy enough. Well, the reason that the beetle kill blight happened in the first place is we stopped cutting down the trees. That was bad. You know, we, we need to protect the trees. So the trees got really, really dense. We started preventing forest fires from happening. Forest fires are nature's natural thinning mechanism. We started fighting off the forest fires or we started protecting the forest because we had houses in that forest and we couldn't afford forest fires to go through. The forest got thicker, which was created increased competition for resources, which meant all the trees in the forest were now stressed because they were all competing for the same finite amount of food, which the beetle came along and said, oh, hell yeah, everybody's stressed. We're going to town. And that's why the beetles were able to take hold and cause this massive blight and this massive die-off. So it's, it's a real catch-22. We were trying to protect the forest by you know preventing forest fires, which allowed the beetles to grab hold, which has now killed all the trees, which eventually, if we leave them standing and they fall over, will create more fires. Thinning reduces fire risk, yes. So the guys going out and cutting down these trees are reducing fire risk. The standing trees won't fall over. Um, but it's bad for spreading, well, let me let me continue this train of thought. It's thinning it, which allows for healthier trees, which will prevent the beetles from getting hold of. However, we're talking about lodgepole and ponderosa pine. Both of these cones, their seeds are sealed into the cones with resin that only opens in fire. They are fire propagating trees. So we've reduced the tree or reduced the forest canopy, increased or decrease the competition, making healthier trees that the beetles can't get a hold of. But when the trees propagate by spreading their leaves due to fire, for spreading their seeds due to fire, you can see the problem here. So now we're getting these forests that are getting older and, and they're, they're fine. They're not gonna get attacked by fire. They're not gonna get attacked by beetles, but they're not actually spreading their seeds. Those cones will stay on the branches for three, four, five years. Eventually they may fall off. Sometimes they'll hang on even longer, but unless fire comes along and melts that resin, those seeds stay locked up inside the cone and therefore the tree does not reproduce. So it's a really, it's a huge catch 22. The result is, or the best action, I guess, is to let it go, let nature take its course, let fire come through, 
kill off all the understory, kill off the competition, allow those cones to open, seed future lodgepole pines to grow, which will grow in a way that is healthy to the stand of the forest. As the undergrowth grows up and competition gets fierce, fire comes in, cuts that undergrowth back, the seeds fall again, the trees grow up again. Fire is the good guy in this instance. Go all the way back to the beginning of this conversation. This genre uh, split happened when these trees decided we are going to seek out fire. We are fire reproductive, fire propagating trees. We stepped in and said, let's cut back on fire and all hell broke loose. So ultimately it's our fault for the beetle kill blight. We stressed all the trees which allowed the beetles to get hold of. We didn't introduce the beetle from shipping it somewhere else. The beetles were always there. And the beetles were continuing to feed on the trees, but then fire would sweep through, kill off the beetles, kill off the fungus, the tree would recover. Beetles would come back and kind of start to take hold again. Fire would come through, kill off the beetles. It's all just a big cycle. And, and that's that's the problem. That There really isn't a solution because we can't just now say, well, let's just let the fires take over because we have civilization in amongst these forests. Plus, we have all this beetle kill pine that if it all went up in flames, yeah, Armageddon that I used before, that's a good word for it. So uh, that's a very long answer to your question, Alex, but it's not a simple simple question to answer. But since we talk about supply and demand, let's continue this by talking about the pine markets. Misha's got a great question here. He says, can you tell me more about the different uh, construction pine, talk more about how the, the difference is between how construction pine is grown and for the rest of the pine, like just in general, as he puts. I would also love to know how US-based pine growing and export difference from differs from Canada and the European Union. So, Let's talk about this. Construction lumber is generally clear cut in its harvest, but it is grown or seeded in rows like crops um, specific to its final product. So you have a stand of trees that's meant to be two by fours. You have another stand of trees over here meant to be two by sixes. Another stand of trees meant to be two by eights, etc. They are specifically um, grown in rows to allow for super fast growth. They reach up to the sunlight. There's not a lot of competition. They grow super fast, super straight. They are, um, in many instances, pruned to grow straight and not create a whole lot of knots in order to meet the structural grade. Structural grade does depend upon knots because knots obviously weaken the tree. So growing in rows like that allows you to get in there, prune them off, um, prune off those branches, but then also allow them to grow straight and fast. Go back a couple episodes Faster grown, aka wider spaced growth rings in softwoods produces a stronger tree. Wider spaced growth rings in a hardwood produces a weaker tree. They're opposites in that respect. So if we want something grown for strength, a two by four, we want it to grow fast with widely spaced growth rings. So we want that forest to get lots of light and then have a little competition. So it's growing, it's getting all the food it can eat and it's growing fat and strong super fast. So there are forests, there are stands of the forest. This is a two by four forest. This is a two by six forest. This is a two by eight forest. They get to a certain size. A two by four tree is a smaller diameter tree than a two by six, obviously. So that two by four forest reaches its maturation. It's clear cut, taken all down at once. It's a, usually a monospecies type thing. It all comes down at once. And then it's seeded again in rows, just like you would plant corn. Same thing with the two by sixes and the two by eights and the two by tens and the two by twelves. It's all the same in that respect. Then there is the pulp material, which is clear cut on harvest, but then it's broadcast seeded to allow everything to kind of grow up in a big clump. It grows relatively quick. It grows relatively dense. This produces the highest mass, highest biomass 
over the shortest period of time. That's all clear cut. It's all thrown into a hopper, ground up and turned into pulp. Um, it's also harvested more frequently, younger trees, which is, can produce a better pulp material than an older tree where there's been more lignin and more growth and more, more growth cycles to produce waste and to harden into lignin and things like that. The younger trees is mostly all cellulose. Lignin is not desired in pulp, you know, paper products and things like that because it's a lot harder. I don't quite understand the chemistry there, but you want higher cellulose, lower lignin content, meaning younger tree in that instance. So those are all grown, you know, in a big clump, uh, again, broadcast seeded like you were fertilizing your lawn. The non-constructive lumber, uh, non-construction lumber, I should say, um, like as, as Misha puts it, um, grown for different purposes, like just in general. <laughs> I love that phrase. Thank you, Misha. Um, Non-construction lumber uses essentially the same method you would find for hardwoods. Selective cutting, shelter wood, silviculture, um, things like that, where you're wanting this tree to grow up in an established forest. So, um, you know, you're, you are pruning in order to create to prune for grade, pruning for straight growth, things like that. Uh, growing in environments where if I have a tree that is shade tolerant or shade intolerant, you're using your silviculture methods for that. You're not clear cutting it and seeding in rows like corn. Um, it's, it's very much like growing cherry or growing you know walnut or something like that. So that's the growing process, very starkly different. Um, and I've said this before, I've talked about Michigan as I've driven through uh, upper Michigan and the upper peninsula of Michigan, you'll be driving along and you'll see all the trees in the forest are the same height. And then like you hit this line where suddenly all the trees in the forest are three foot taller than the trees you were just looking at. And then you hit a huge open field where it was just clear cut. And then you hit a field where all the trees are eight feet tall and they all have, you know, you can see down the rows, all the trunks are the same diameter. You can very clearly see the rows. Then you had a patch of like three foot tall forest where it's all clumped together. And that's obviously pulp. So you can, you can absolutely see purpose grown plots of land for the product at hand. Since we know what the product is, we know exactly how we want to grow it in order to create the best product, which is why I say, you know, that old episode I did in the first, I think episode seven or something like that, you know, they don't make studs like they used to. Closely spaced growth rings in a stud is a bad idea. Studs today are actually better than the studs a hundred years ago from a structural perspective, not from a, you know, twisty, no bow perspective. That's just the way studs are. We don't care because we hammer them in a frame and we cover sheathing over top of it and the twist doesn't matter. If you're building furniture from a two by four, that's a totally different story. Then you're looking for real pine, <laughs> heavy use of the real there. So the US and Canada markets, the export, just the business is different based upon the species and that end product, which is why I bring that up. Canada for the first, for the, um, first instance is dominated by fir and cedar, hemlock and spruce. The pines that happen in Canada are the larger, taller white pines that get used in that construction lumber, that SPF lumber. The spruce, the fir, and those larger white pines, they are specifically harvested like I was just talking about with a specific end product in mind, two by four, two by six, et cetera. The fire resistant ones, the yellow pines, 
those happen more in the US, not as much up in Canada. So the majority of our construction lumber is actually coming from Canada. There is certainly a lot of it coming from the US, but there's also a lot coming from Canada. And these days, a hell of a lot coming from the European Union because tariffs in Canada have caused more expensive material, but also the closure of a lot of sawmills and a dramatic reduction in infrastructure in Canada. And the void has been filled by the Asian market. So um, yeah, a lot of Asian export in the SPF market right now, filling the gap that was previously filled by Canada. Interesting. Um, also, uh, the European market is filling the Asian market, the Chinese market, a lot since the Russian-Ukrainian war. Nobody wants to buy Russian stuff, and the Russians are preoccupied doing other things like fighting stupid wars. So the European Union has said, okay, we'll take that business, and they're selling more to the Asian market now, too. So there, in quick and short, as I'm jumping around out of order here, that's the European Union. They're exporting Scots and Austrian pine. That line share is going to thermally modified materials uh, born out of Scandinavia. The rest of the European market falls under that SPF market, uh, filling the Canadian void, but also the Russian void. The U.S. market is um, yellow pines, the southern yellow pines. Um, those are higher density and hardness that's not really suitable for that SPF market. It's suitable for the SYP, the southern yellow pine market, which is poles, um, flooring, harder things like flooring. In some respect, pulp. There is some southern yellow pines that are grown, broadcast seeded, and grown for pulp. Uh, and I'm guessing that's where your yellow college rule paper comes from. I honestly don't know. That's a joke, but I could actually be onto something. I'm not really sure. There is certainly There are certainly southern yellow pines that are grown for paper mills. The majority of the paper mills in this country happen to be in the south now, which is kind of interesting, those that are still alive. Most of the northern paper mills, I think, have shut down with the exception of like Rumford and Mexico, Maine. Um, could be wrong there, but uh, most of them are down south and they're obviously using southern yellow pines there. But because that pine is harder in nature, that in product, flooring and telephone poles and fence poles and things like that is what it ends up being used for. And therefore, that's how it's harvested. That's also how it's grown. So the differences in the market are entirely determined by the types of pines that are growing and the in use of that pine. It is an enormous market. It dwarfs the hardwood market, like by orders of magnitude. So the facilities, the SPF facilities, the SYP facilities, these are facilities that are almost entirely automated that can be seen from space. It is ridiculous the size of these lumber trends, or lumber, lumber industries. This is an industry that I personally don't operate in. I operate in a hardwood industry in my day job. Um, very, very different industry, but um, the pine one is particularly interesting because of the fact that it's all pine, right? Even though it might be spruce and it might be fir or it might be yellow pine or northern pine or western yellow pine, it's really fascinating. And in order to be a buyer in that market, you have to basically understand everything that I've already talked about, like orders of magnitude better than what I just talked about. But it's it's cool stuff when you start thinking about the economic and, and botanical uh, drivers for, geographic drivers for those industrial markets. It's very cool. So, which leads me to my last question from Ethan, who says, I'm in Arizona. I buy from real lumber dealers, not big box dealers. I can't seem to find good quality pines or other softwoods that are actually dried properly. Is this a fact I need to live with? Should I expect to find any well-dried, decent softwoods to work with here? 
Short answer, Ethan, is no. You shouldn't expect that. Um, pine is not really local to Arizona. The pines that do grow in Arizona are not lumber-producing pines. They are the twisted, gnarled, short, little, almost shrub-looking pines. Um, in the forests of Arizona, you're starting to get into the western yellow pine, some of the ponderosa, some of the lodgepole that's there. But due to just the really, really harsh conditions, they tend to be kind of stunted in growth. In other words, there there is very little lumber being very little lumber industry in Arizona. The lumber that you are buying in Arizona is being trucked in from elsewhere, in other words. So when you look at the lower margin that comes with softwoods in general, but specifically pine, it doesn't really make a lot of sense for a lumber yard in Arizona to pay a bunch of money to ship in a material that is going to net a very, very low profit margin. They're going to buy it, or excuse me, they're going to sell it for pennies more than they actually bought it, and it costs to, to truck it in. The cost of moving that lumber, transportation and logistics of that lumber, is a significant percentage of its cost. So it's very difficult to sell it at a price that makes them any money. What they can make money on, though, is hardwoods trucked in from the same place that the softwoods would come from. So what you're finding is the dealers in Arizona, they're not really taking a strong stance in pine um, other than the spruce pine fir stuff, which is what you're buying in the big box store. So unfortunately, Ethan, it's something that you should expect. Um, and if you really want to work with good pine, plan a road trip to you know someplace north of you. Go into, there are dealers in Colorado where you can get good Ponderosa and Lodgepole. Um, there are dealers um, a little bit further east of you that can get you some good Southern Yellow Pine. So maybe you plan a vacation with a trailer hitched to the family truckster so you can get some of that good pine and take it back. Buying it locally in Arizona is probably not going to happen due to those lumber markets that I talked about. They're grown for specific reasons. Your particular region doesn't have any reason to grow it, so nobody's really harvesting it or har or, or, or trading it. Um, all the trading that's done has a hefty logistics transportation rider attached to it. Whew, we have just scratched the surface of the pines. It's a fascinating family, a fascinating genus, subgenus. Um, Personally, it's a fantastic wood to work with. And if you can get your hands on some quote unquote good pine, not the SPF stuff, you'll be surprised. You're gonna, you true are gonna start singing and chanting the mantra that pine is fine. So thank you for listening. Thank you to all of the patrons that came up with some phenomenal questions. I got some good questions on Instagram, but most of this come from you guys who sponsor the show. So thank you so much for sponsoring the show, but also helping me put together a really cool episode. This episode flowed really nicely. Like every question segued into the other one perfectly. And I, I, I owe that thanks to you guys for asking such great questions. So I will just close by saying, go buy some pine. And when you do go buy some pine, you know a lot more about the pine you're buying now. And you can bore the guy at the lumberyard to the point where he might ask you to leave. Sorry.